Are you a fan of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores podcast? Do you want to support the show and show off your love for LTGW? Look no further than You Can Do Merch Store, brought to you by host and creator, Nancy Adair. Do you suppose we'll hear stories about addiction? We might. Oh. Stories about recovery, too? Mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are on the air with me, Nancy Adair the host and creator of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores. And today, I am so excited, I mean, just bubbling over with joy to be co-hosting with Season three's co-host, Mariana Casagranda, who is herself a recovering artist, and that is what our Season 3 is dedicated to all artists in recovery. And we have quite the lineup for you. Our recent interview with Russ Coleman, a sculptor from the United Kingdom. And Russ is part of a group called Artists in Recovery that is housed in Newcastle, England. And I just, um, I love that we're bringing you our first topic show of season three to talk about some of the things that came up in the interview with Russ. So first, let me welcome Mariana into her official role as LTGW's co-host for season three. Ta-da! Thank you, Nancy. (laughs) No, I want to say thank you, because I was looking for a co-host here for a while, and I'm I'm Mm -hmm. really really joyful because I think as you get to hear Mariana, she has so many gifts to offer and we're very excited to have. Thank you. Delighted to be here. So one of the things that you said, Mariana, really stood out for you and it did for me as well was Russ talking about the romance, the idea of being a starving artists. And one of the ideas in that is that we are more creative when we're drinking, you know, or using drugs. And I think about how many artists have died young due to overdoses. And they take that romanticizing that myth of being the creative wild one uh, to the extreme at the cost of their own lives. And I remember one time I was working with a a abundance coach and she introduced this idea of we all have a money story. And I asked her if the starving artist was a money story. And she said, oh, it's an archetypal money story. (laughs) Yes. So what were some of your thoughts about Russ feeling captured by that romanticized idea of being an artist and being an alcoholic? Well, what hit me first, Nancy, was the drama to the story. You know, there was this layer of drama. Who who can resist drama when you're in your cups? You know, really, no one. And the rolling around in the victim and martyrdom roles, which which can be done with such relish when you're 
drinking because it it's part of the threat of misery. You know, I, I've got to have misery in my life and, you know, I need the drink. I need to have something in me in order to create, you know, this whole idea that in and of yourself, it's not enough, period. And you need this help. Reminds me of the pour me, pour me, pour me a drink. No kidding. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. And archetypes are big stories that are, you know, welded into the consciousness. And you, and I think I felt often this obligation to fulfill it. Otherwise I wouldn't be considered a real artist. You know, real artists suffer, you know, they wear clothing that has holes in it and they have, you know, all this, you know, the whole thing. They live in an attic or I don't know, somewhere desperate. Um, and ironically, if you hold to it, pretty easy to fulfill, frankly, you know, if you think about it. It doesn't demand a whole lot of you. You just kind of don't do much except go on and on and bemoan your face. So. Well, I, I unfortunately, I do know. I, I remember mm. being a very young girl, 16, 17 years old, looking at colleges, and I went to art school. And my father, who was the market research director of General Foods, said to me, well, all right, you can pick an art school for college, but what are you going to do for real work? Oh, yeah. You know, what are you going to do yeah. to create an income? Because it won't come from the arts. Right. You know, and right. I want to, I want to shout like at, at my dead father for the moment, you know, talk about <laughs> drama. I was just thinking about mm -hmm. my mother. His wife was salutatorian of Barnard, which is Columbia's sister school, an Ivy League school. And she was second in her class and her studies were in chemistry and physics. And she was a potter who made all her own glazes. And she was a gardener who cross-pollinated hmm. azalea. Wow. And she Amazing. was very bright and capable of earning a good living. And then that became an issue in the, you know, I was born in the mid 50s. So it was, a, mm -hmm. you know, women working outside of the house. Your job was to be a mother and a housewife. Boy, you know, uh, those gender roles, man, they, they were solid. Well, you know, they were crafted to be so straight-laced and straight-jacketed, really, in so many ways. Yeah, your mother defied convention by doing what she did. and But yet, you know, she had to find some way to be acceptable, some way to, you know, be okay somehow. And that was wow. often drinking to keep my father company. You know, keeping the lid on potential is what this archetype really emphasizes. Repressing so, and suppressing, I think, on so many levels. The archetype mm -hmm. of the starving artist. Yes, yes. And yeah. for listeners who may not know the term, where does it come from, archetype? What does it really represent? It represents a, do I say universal consciousness? A, well, it taps into the collective unconscious. Young talked about that. That regardless of where you live on the planet, whatever culture and ethnic and skin color you may have and traditions and norms, there's an, a deeper level of awareness that crosses all boundaries, time and history. And that these stories are so compelling and they get, they get painted in a way that makes sense to that individual culture or society, but they're the same themes. And so the Greek myths got redone at Star Wars. Those Star Wars stories were Greek myths coming back in more modern parlance. And they pulled at people's 
souls. You know, people went in droves and they still do because there's something about the message underneath that calls. It's the yearning and a familiarity. That's the best, you know, definition of archetype I can come up with in the moment. And I like also that the addict's journey in recovery is like the hero's journey of Joseph Campbell and and, yes. and that there's a crescendo. You know, that's often what I look for, what I ask of guests is, you know, what was that moment in time? I typically ask what was the straw that broke the camel's back? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. what is that? Was there a moment of in AA culture, hitting bottom. And I love that Russ said there were several bottoms along the way. Yes, right. Before the big one. It's correlating to me to the archetype in the story of Persephone, who loses her connection to the outside world with her mother and has to go down to the underworld. And she becomes queen there, ultimately, but not without ramifications in her relationship with her mother and other things that happen in the story. And the descent to me is very familiar in what happens as an addict and alcoholic as we hit bottom and hit bottom and find ourselves looking in the face of our shadow selves, everything we've tried to deny about ourselves, all the ugliness of it, the emptiness of it, the vastness of it. And I also was struck with Russ, the comedy of it. You know, yes. I really pictured him outside of this pub flipping a coin to see if with the last bit of money that he had in his pocket, he would get something to eat. And I don't know how long he went without or whether he was going to get a drink. And he said, if the coin was heads, he was going to get food in his belly. And the coin did come up heads. So he said, okay, best two out of three. <laughs> because that other part of him that he was powerless over that had taken over was going to get that drink. And he knew it before he flipped mm -hmm. a coin, before he started right. to play with himself about it. That's right. So in my astrology, you know, glasses or whatever, however we're going to reference this, the emotional needs of the soul will get satisfied regardless of whether they are uh, done at the surface or unconsciously. Those needs are going to get met. And his emotional needs were tied to needing to escape. And he was going to get that need met regardless. And that was part of it. You know, the ability to escape and run from or be separate from, you know, that which gave him any nurturance. I mean, think about what he did. He opted not to eat, to give his body food to, to work right? To work properly or to at least get fed and have some nutrients to instead, like many of us have done, go for the cheap calories, the, th you know, that instant high, the sugar in the body that moves us into that mood and to that feeling of being other than ourselves. Boy, talk about selling you, selling yourself, compromising yourself, right? Selling yourself, selling your soul. It's exactly that. Yeah. And yeah. I, also love, you know, liars, thieves, gluttons, and horrors. I always say the tagline is sharing stories from the dark side and the light side of mm -hmm. both recovery and addiction so that mm -hmm. there's a dark side in recovery and there's also a light side in addiction. You know, sometimes that really comical, like most often, as we've said before, we laugh in retrospect. It came up for me in his interview about having to borrow money to file for bankruptcy 
in sobriety. <laughs> that was fabulous. That was fabulous and so real. And I think our better angels give us the capacity for humor because once you come out of that underground and you're crawling your way through this dark, long tunnel, you're getting rebirth, okay, whether you know it or not, and you're crawling on your hands and knees and thinking, great, this is a good time. Your ass is being saved. Your humor may is like a crack in the surface of your consciousness to let some light in. And if you can laugh at yourself, not taking yourself that seriously, there's a there's hope that comes in. There's possibility, I think. And you're reminding me of in Russ's interview, exactly what he said was that his he was at a pinnacle of success at this time when um, everything fell apart in his collaborative relationships, mm -hmm. making art in a group, and that they were particularly working on one project, the comedy, what was it called? It was called the Comedy Carpet. Yes, the comedy yes. carpet. I remember I, I like alliterations a lot. So, you know, yes. the comedy in carpet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In Blackpool. And, Blackpool. Yeah. And it's this long cement walkway on the ocean mm -hmm. that they put all these uh, British comedy, which is incredible humor, into white lettering and storytelling on black concrete, I think. You know, I would love to see that for myself and and May one day. It was the relationships. It was the breakdown of relationship because he wasn't tending to the aspects of recovery when you do have your self-worth again, when you do see value in your work and in time and I know I, I faced it myself when recovery gives you all these gifts and you forget the tools that you use to get those gifts in the first place. And it feels like, well, my life is so busy and so full now. I didn't really want to go to those meetings or, or stay in touch with my new tribe or make a phone call or, you know, pre-plan or prepare good nutrition. It's, it's the irony of addiction. The last thing we want to do is be vulnerable, intimate with others. That's the last thing on the agenda. Let us face that. I don't want to, I don't want to get vulnerable with someone in true intimacy. So I can tap dance for others. I can camouflage and compensate with the best of them. I can pretend for a while. But everything you've just talked about is in order to be healthy requires real relationship skills. It requires being able to talk and listen, right? And and to learn how to compromise and be in partnership that's not codependent. Wow. That's a lot of effing work, by the way. And not many of us are raising our hands going, oh, goody, let me sign up for that one. You know? <laughs> I did not grab a deli number for that one, okay? And yet, part of my recovery, and perhaps others, is being put in those positions, whether I like it or not, and having to learn how to do it. Because the soul is going, guess what? You know, the little S self does not have the, the steering wheel here. This is part of the overarching need, and you have to learn how to do it. Why? Because if we can't have a relationship with each other, how are you going to have a relationship with source? It's the same. The level to which I am willing to relate to other people is the level to which I 
delude myself that I have the capacity to connect with a higher power. How funny is that, right? <laughs> just, it's like, what are we doing? When you said little s, I thought big S is soul. And then I thought little s is soul and big S is source. Well, it's the difference between the personal desires and the divine desires. You know, personal will, divine will. That's the better choice. Mm -hmm. It's the it's the personal will and the divine will. And true success is aligning one with the other. Correct. Because both in harmony evolve the soul forward. You know, we resist it because we're afraid. Well, one of the things I wanted to say from our pre-show talk was your insight about the time when Russ had COVID early on mm -hmm. and when there you know, were no vaccines when we could, he could have very well died. And he decided that he needed to do some, as you stated, interior scrubbing with step nine work. And what a, a common theme that is when divinity, the divine really gives a wake up call to the soul. Yeah. Life-threatening disease or illness brings one to the brink of a perspective that you don't otherwise have. And the past regrets, unfinished business, unresolved bits and pieces come up to the level of conscious awareness and the urgent, the sense of urgency because time is an issue, particularly in this case or in his case, because he was talking about not being able to breathe. That's pretty primal for any of us. You know, the feeling of drowning or not being able to breathe freely is a huge, uh, talk about fear and monumental overwhelm on all survival instincts. So all all things are firing at that point. And I I really thought what a powerful instinct that he listened to in terms of reaching out to old intimate relations, old girlfriends I think he mentioned and other people with that he had flotsam and jetsam unfinished business with and really addressing those because he didn't want to leave this life with that much baggage behind. And to me, that was clear soul direction and navigation because in order to wake up at that profound level, you have to de you have to let go of all things, including body and thoughts around controlling body and life. It's a big surrender there. I don't want to run towards that one, but it's a big surrender when you're facing death. That's the ultimate in the ring with, you know, and that's it. So that urgency came up and he did beautifully because he had a spiritual program. You know, he knew what he had to do at that elemental level. Yeah, he did say that he wished he had done it early in recovery, not 30 years into recovery. However, he talked about something quite beautiful that I think a lot of artists will relate to. In all ways, he talked about showing up, not just showing up in relationship to others, but showing up in his studio with his art and saying, even if I don't feel like I can create or creative at all, that I put myself in my studio and I neaten or tidy things or just spend time. And I relate to that right now in my life. You know, there are times when I just bring myself into my studio and will sort or you know, start doing finish work on one project and see what, and and things come, you know, inspirations just bubble up to the surface, it, partly because I'm putting myself in that space, which as I'm talking about it now, 
reminds me of having a space for meditation. It's kind of having the studio be a return to soar space Mm -hmm. that has that energy and the energy is contained there so that even if I don't have the energy going into a period of time that I have set aside to create, just by bringing myself showing up, it surprises me. It shows up. Yeah, there's a, there is an inherent sense of authentic power and authentic recognition of one's spiritual authority when one worships with creation, right? Because Mm -hmm. what source has done in creating all the world around us, this is my cosmology only, okay? These are my personal beliefs. The exquisite gift of being a creator or creatrix, as the case may be, is that in order for one to give birth, one has to become empty first. One has to have a space to receive. If you're not able to receive, you're not going to give birth. So this, this act of Showing up at the studio, showing up at the writing desk, showing up in your life is a, a state of emptiness purposefully, emptying out the, the, the flotsam and jetsam of life and all the, the bits and pieces of it, putting those aside deliberately to, to, to do things like arrange your studio or clean up some mess. You're preparing the way for a silent, you're doing a silent meditation to prepare for receiving. And the act of faith underneath that which is demonstrated by the action of going in to sweep the floor and clear the table and, you know, arrange your your, uh, implements and tools is a statement saying, I believe that I will receive and I am ready. And that is a form of prayer to me and willingness to say, whatever I'm meant to create, I'm now holding space for purposely and consciously. And to me, That is one of the most beautiful, exquisite statements of receptivity and relationship to source that I can imagine. So I know there were just a couple more features or parts of the show that really stood out for you and me as well. Uh, The recovery from under earning and the reparenting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What stood out for you? about those topics? For me, the whole, the word reparenting is really important um, because in my own story, I had literal parents who showed up with what they could do and, and a lot of what they couldn't do in my worldview. And the conditioning of my traditions, my culture, my customs, also a layer of parental guidance, I guess, or story, and how important it is for us to finally come to a place where we take everything we've been given by those sources and learn to discern what is rightfully ours and what never was ours. And so for me in recovery, ACOA, Al-Anon, AA, FA, DA, all of them teach me these, these deeper, deeper sense of connection to what really is mine and what is really my responsibility at long last and what no longer serves me and never did, but I took on. Now that alone is like 50 years worth of shows right there. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was just thinking about sure. something I heard while listening to a book on Audible while working out at the gym the other morning. And the presenter 
talked about accepting what you cannot change. And I thought he was going to refer to the serenity prayer. And then he said, and change what you cannot accept. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, that's a lovely, you know, sure, Mm -hmm. with courage and wisdom, we're going to do that. And it's also like, we have the ability to accept that we cannot change this, and then also change what you cannot accept. And I loved one workshop that I attended of children of alcoholics, the very first thing they said when introducing themselves, the two presenters said, your parents did the very best job they could. And boy, had I heard that a lot, but they finished it with, and they did a lousy job. Your parents did the very best job they could, and they did a lousy job. And that helped me because I think about these two sentences, you know, I except that I cannot change that my parents did a lousy job and change what I cannot accept is living under the parenting of that, you know, or accepting that level of parenting with my own child. So to add, through the lens of my background with the Kabbalah, when a soul reaches a certain number of lifetimes and is mature enough to begin to tackle the more difficult realms that are part of the soul's evolution. One of the things that happens in the personal life is that sometimes the mother or sometimes the father, or in my case, both, will be unable to fulfill my expectations of what those roles are supposed to be on purpose. And the reason they're doing it on purpose, this contract that was agreed to prior to my birth being birth, is that at an emotional level and at a physical level, It was no longer uh, vital for me to become attached and dependent upon them because it would interfere with my being in relationship to SOAR and to have a real alignment. So all the things I expected, I wanted emotional nurturing, I wanted comfort and security and uh, love and appreciation always, no matter what kind of mood I was in and what the hell I was doing. Unrealistic, unfulfillable, and they didn't show up for those things. Yay. Did I appreciate that at the time? Oh, no, 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 no. But this was essential deconditioning from all this false, these delusions that interfere with my true self. And remember, personal will versus divine will not happening. (laughs) So being stripped from those things, having a mother who didn't show up, who wasn't emotionally receptive, who wasn't going to hug me or give me any of that. A father who did what he did, you know, they were both helping me get out of that. I didn't realize it at the time. Thank goodness I stumbled onto the Kabbalah again in this life because that helped me. Um, And it made a difference, you know, to get parented more healthily through recovery and through other sources. Thank you for just looping back to that because In addition to the other sources, I think recovery really is about growing up. It really is a process of reparenting of oneself and in community of the fellowship. And there is an emptying, a real suffering, Mm -hmm. uh, what do they call it? The acronym for God, the gift of desperation that brings you to that point of surrender. So, oh my gosh, we've said so much. Um, You think? <laughs> yeah, I think. I think. I think we're going to exhaust our listeners, and yeah, you know, more than hopefully, likely. people will listen time and time again to hear more. Um, to 
or even to digest what has been said. So until next time, how do listeners get in touch with you, Mariana? Thank you. Yes, they can contact me at marianacasagranda.com. That is my website address. And my business is under the name of La Strega. Uh, and uh, you can find out more information about uh, the readings that I offer and uh, other sundry pertinent information. Thank you for letting me share that once again. Well, I hope you share it every time we're together because I think people all our listeners would really value and get so much out of further contact with you. And if you like the show, I encourage you to subscribe. Subscribing helps us in so many ways and as easy as clicking a button on my website, which is nancyadair.com. That's N-A-N-C-I-A-D-A-I-R.com. And then you'll get a notification every time a new show comes up. And also there is merchandise there. So if you want a t-shirt or a hat that says liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores on it, and who doesn't want that? All kinds of things. Um, There's so much merchandise. Please avail yourself and or gift a friend in recovery. And we will see you next time. Do you suppose we'll hear stories about addiction? We might. Oh. Stories about recovery too? Mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. I'm Nancy Adair, the host of LTGW, where we explore the stories from the dark and the light side of both addiction and recovery. Our show is currently free to listen to and it's advertisement free. Therefore, we're relying on your support to keep bringing you these powerful stories. 